This is Mike Gow from the Comic Book Syndicate. This is Quasar Chronology number 11, and this week we're joined by a special guest. Please introduce yourself. Uh, I'm Adam Pelche. I'm a librarian at the Windsor Public Library, and I am an avid comic book reader myself, so I'm very excited to be part of this. And uh, Actually, Mike, this is very special because this is my first time ever reading Marvel 2-in-1. Yes, you're saying you'd never heard of this comic before. Never heard of it before. I didn't even realize the thing had his own series at, at all. After, actually, he had 100 issues of this, then after this he had his own series called The Thing for 30 issues. Yeah. Um, what you don't know. Uh, well, that's it. People don't realize how popular the FF were back in the 60s and 70s, and specifically The Thing. However, The Human Torch was actually the first to have his own solo backup series in, I think, Strange Tales. Mm -hmm. So he was also really popular. For some reason, Invisible Girl and Mr. Fantastic were not as popular. I don't know why. Invisible Woman didn't get her own series until this year. Funny did, enough. Did Mr. Fantastic ever have his own series? He might have had a mini-series, but never a regular monthly, so. Mm -hmm. mm. So let's talk about, let's start with this this cover here. So let's ignore this banner at the top, Win a oh, Columbia 10-Speed Racer. I actually wanted to talk about you, that. Okay, go ahead. I sure. miss those sort of tie-ins that you would have in comics back in the day. Get your free bicycle. Get your uh, chance to win a, I think there was a contest to appear in the mask Part two in one comic book. Really? Yeah. That, random issues that you would find in the 80s and 90s. Uh, maybe it's just part of the nostalgia of it, but I miss these gimmicky little bits here. There's definitely some charm to it. It is funny that even a famous um, comic like Uncanny X-Men number 137, The Death of Phoenix, right? Mm -hmm. That has got a giant... I don't think it's the same one, the 10 speed, it's, but it's a similar one. Like, when this comic... Or this comic can be worth... <laughs> Whatever money, it, it just it, to me it like it takes up like a tenth of the cover and kind of ruins it. But whatever, that's fine. Okay, so let's talk about this. So we've got behold the mind staggering might of Modok, uh, the thing side by side with the Savage Submariner. So a definitely a decent looking cover. Modok is very Kirby esque. Uh, what's your opinion of this image here? You know, I like the dynamic nature. You have uh, Namor who's actually fighting one of uh, Modok's minions, a giant cyborg, and then Ben Grimm. This is the only thing I don't like about the issue. Okay. Ben's at the very bottom of the page. He looks like he's clinging onto something. I can't tell if it's the shreds of a machine or like a green blanket. It looks like he's about to like roll over and take a nap. I, I just I yeah. love the dynamicness of it. I guess it. It's not a very great representation of the star of the comic, you could say, right? Yeah, he really is pushed down to the bottom, literally. Uh, but, you know, it, compared to a lot of modern comics, at least you know, it's colorful. Something that's going on in the story is being represented on the cover. Yes, it's much more than you can say for a lot of contemporary issues. Absolutely, that's true. So, And that's the funny thing that I've learned from reading these um, Bronze Age comics uh, over it. Because I've read a lot, but this is like, these are new, these comics are new to me. But is no matter how bad it is, it's always better than a modern comic. I mean, not all. There's about, I would say maybe maybe 5% of the modern comics from DC and Marvel are really good. But there's that 95% that I just can't get into, you know? Well, we're going to talk about this because uh, this comic definitely is of the age. <laughs> yes. No denying that. Many things about it, yeah. I think um, we're just getting to it. I think even the opening page, once you get inside the issue, this huge splash page, you just have Namor looking like, I, I don't know, it looks like he's in a GQ spread. Yes, you could say that. Splashing <clears throat> out of the water. Uh, and this is the thing about Namor. Have you ever covered Namor on the program he, yet? He's guest starred in a few of the comics we've done, yes. Okay, very central to Marvel history. He appeared in, um, I believe it was Marvel number one. Marvel, Marvel Comics number one. He actually appeared before that and a comic called Motion Picture Funnies number one. So he's actually Marvel's first superhero. Yeah, a lot of history, and yet he's been a very 
underutilized character. Not that he hasn't played mm-hmm. important roles in a lot of storylines. It's just he hasn't quite gotten the attention that a lot of other big names have, True. like Thor. There's never Hulk. been a movie, right? Never been a movie yet. We'll see. Right. I'm not sure what the rights are like mm-hmm. when it comes to Namor. They might be tied up with Columbia Pictures or something, yeah. Mm-hmm. So essentially, um, this starts out kind of going off of a story arc that happened way back in the initial run of Fantastic Four, where Namor is taking... Uh, a great dive out of the water, and he's entering into New York City. Um, I don't know. Do you want to talk at all about I want this to ta- place? I got to talk about yeah. this dialogue before we continue because this is some great Stanley-esque dialogue by um, Tom DeFalco here. <clears throat> How glorious is the shining sun, so warm and soothing in its gentle caress. Far too long has this simple pleasure been denied me. I mean, I could keep reading the whole comic, but very Stanley-esque. Okay, mm-hmm. and we did. You know, speaking of Submariner, we did review a recent issue of Amazing Spider-Man, two of them actually, where Submariner appeared, but the story was written by Danny O'Neill, and he just didn't seem like the same character as this. It strikes me as odd, because when I was reading this, from what I have read of Submariner, mm. he's a very stoic character, sure. very quiet, kind of regal, and here, he's pontificating the entire time. That's true. That's true. And, and that's something about the Falco's writing I, I know is of the era, and okay. you can't really criticize too much, but... Oh, all the exposition that goes on. There is so much. Yes. And, and you know what's funny is um, when Mar- we've had Marshall uh, Svalchin uh, on our show a couple times, and he's criticized the writing as being too much like Stan Lee. But I think there's an art to imitating Stan Lee. Some people get it right, some people don't. I think Tom DeFalco gets it right, but we'll get more into that later. Mm-hmm. So Submariner comes out of the water, and the first thing he does is... We don't know exactly what he's doing yet, but he he decides that he he's going to kind of infiltrate um, you know the citizens of New York City. So the first thing he does is he goes to this clothing store, and again, this is like let's be clear, Stanley was a funny writer, and Tom DeFalco is doing his best to imitate that style of writing where he's walking in and the way he's interacting with these people is outrageous. But it's like, you know, let he, he bursts through the door of this clothing store. Let the Herald announce me. Neymar the first has chosen to honor this lowly establishment with its patronage. And then there's this woman. I'll get the manager. See that you do. And it's just great, right? <laughs> it features one of my favorite lines in this comic. Uh, Namor is holding up a blue raincoat. These garments of, of, are of inferior quality. These garments are of inferior quality and primitive design, yet they may serve my purpose. Yes! <laughs> yep. I love it. I love it. And of course, you know, he can't be a complete incognito dressed New Yorker without uh, a trilby. He has to just yes. grab one. Yep, I love it. He does comment on the ears, though, right? Yeah. He, he, um, the ears, it, you know, for people that don't know, Submariner does have pointed ears. And so... Um, um, they at least address that in the issue. And then, of course, how does he pay for the clothes? He he gives the guy pearls. He's like, And then the, the, the shop owner's like, pearls? Th- they're priceless. And then he kind of just walks out. And I love how the narration, uh, another worker says, just imagine yourself on an original Christian Dior. And then the narration, not deigning to dignify the store manager with a reply. The submariner um, imperiously strides forth into the crowded city streets. It's great. I love it. <laughs> you know what I do love? For these comics from the Bronze Era, the vocabulary used mm-hmm. is incredible. You don't see that in modern comics or anything from the no. Dark Age. No, this this is fantastic. You can tell the Falco's just there with a the thesaurus, just trying mm-hmm. to, like you said, emulate Stan Lee as much as possible. And then we finally enter into the star of the show. We're going to get the thing here. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always love FF interaction. Like sure. him and Sue Storm are there, and he, they're talking t- with his. Uh, 
Well, his Bew, who is moving out of the city. Now, th- I didn't realize this was part of the storyline that happened at all. Yeah, um, Alicia Masters. Actually, is it Alicia? 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 I've heard it pronounced so many ways. Oh, okay. Let's just say Miss Masters. Sure, Miss Masters. She has had previously moved into the Baxter building, and they actually say what issue. It's like, I don't know, two-in-one number 20 or something. Mm-hmm. And in this uh, issue, she's moving out. So again, this is Marvel's... I, I, this is what I love about Marvel is they keep track of all the the subplots of each character and what they're doing, where mm-hmm. they're living, who their roommates are. And so this is just picking up on that subplot. And so we touch base with the FF for a few uh, pages here. And like you said, about the interaction between... You, you, it's always entertaining. One of the things writer Mark Wade pointed out is the cool thing with the FF is if you put the thing in a room with Reed Richards versus the thing with Sue Richards versus the Human Torch and Reed Richards. It's completely different dynamics, right? Mm -hmm. And so here we get them interacting and Sue Richards can see how frustrated the thing is with Alicia Masters moving out. And she knows that he's having a hard time with it, but it's just like, it's kind of something he has to accept. And so at the end of the scene, he actually says, well, she says, Ben, this separation won't affect your relationship. In fact, it may strengthen it and help draw us even closer together. And Thing says, yeah, keep telling me that, and someday I may believe it. Wait, Ben, where are you going? Outside. i got to get me some fresh air. It's too stuffy in here. I'm afraid my eyes are going to start watering if I stick around any longer. Awesome. That, like, that's great interaction. It, great. And it's, again, it's, only, it's dialogue only he could say, right? He doesn't sound anything like Sue Storm. He doesn't sound anything like anyone else. While we're here, I want to talk about the art quickly. We didn't mention the art is by Ron Wilson, who did almost the entire run of... Oh, not the entire run, but he did a lot of issues of 2-in-1 and The Thing. What do you think about the art? You know, for the art, I kind of feel it's a mixed bag. Mm. One thing I do appreciate is the fact that the body dynamics are great. The characters just don't stand around with stock uh, poses. It actually feels like they have genuine motion, they're kinetic, and I love the faces. This is something that I think is really hard, especially for the era of uh, illustrators to do, which is make female characters not look all the same. Yes. And he does that. You can see there's a different bone structure for Sue Storm's face compared mm-hmm. to Masters. Um, I'm going to talk about some art I didn't like later on. But okay, I, but okay. I, I think for these sequences, the art is great. I'm always, I'm always not a fan, though, whenever you see just generic color in background. Okay. Uh, there is a panel on this page where it's a thought bubble next to Sue Storm, and there's this red background. Yeah. Color-wise, I don't appreciate it because I don't even get why the red is there. Sure, sure. It should, you know, indicate alarm or surprise. It just seems incongruous to the rest of the scene. But, uh, you know, a small offense compared to my criticism I'm going to have later on. Well, I'm just going to... Okay, so this is digital page six, just so people can follow along. Mm-hmm. It's an interesting page to me because I love the way um, Ron Wilson... Again, maybe not the greatest Marvel artist, but a, a classic uh, Kirby-style artist. So we have... The thing being sort of framed by just the shadow, right? And like the light coming in here, which is nice. Then we cut and we see looking through the skylight here, just to give a different perspective, right? Mm-hmm. Then we cut to a close-up. Then we cut to a two-shot. And then, I, oh, look at this. It's not even, I'm touching it like it's a touch screen. But then I love the fact that in this last panel, we see the thing walking out of the room. So we know that Alicia Masters is moving out. So we see the back of the two women. The thing is walking away. And then we see the long shadows coming in here. And we see all the furniture with the, um, what is that called? Uh, not drapes, yeah. but... 
Yeah, like drapes, like coverings yeah. around it. So we, we visually get the idea that she's moving out. We visually get the idea. The long shadows also suggest kind of like the end of the day, right? Like, tw- mm-hmm. like twilight-ish. So there's, just, I just, there's a lot of thought put into the composition of the page, and that's why I really like it. No, for that, I think there's definite strengths to the artist. And I think in terms of also, um, you mentioned compositions. I think proportions are great. Mm-hmm. Again, not to make this an entire thing debating the merits of modern comics, but writers just don't know proportions these or I sh- Artists just don't seem to get proportions You're right. these days. You're totally right. And um, I think... Part of it has to do with a lot of them are not really great cartoonists. They're manipulators of photos, and they learn from copying photos. Mm-hmm. And when you do that, it's one thing to imitate a photo, but it's another thing to have the like the sense memory to know how to keep things in proportion and how to draw different perspectives. But Precisely. that's a whole different conversation. So then we join. Uh, so then the thing kind of goes out. He's kind of moping around, walking around town. And again, we get some great shots of him walking through. You know, even this shot here, framing him in between these garbage cans with like a stray cat. Again, it just shows his state of mind. It shows the city. It's great, right? And it's the usual thing trope. He's walking around, moping. Mm -hmm. People are saying, look at that thing. Look Mm -hmm. at that freak. You know, it's basically the thing's MO at this point. It's still to this day, you know, a defining trait of his character. Uh, And then in the next sequence, lo and behold, because it's a comic book, Uh there's... Uh, a homeless person being beaten up by a gold robot. Of course there is. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And this robot, can I just talk about the sure. design of it? This is great. This is what we need more of, distinctive appearances. This robot has a visor, which is broken up by, it appears, a gold mohawk. Yes. He has, I want to say, ruby nipples going all the way down his chest yeah i don't know what those are they're like tubes of some kind they almost look like big red q-tips yes you're right (laughs) and of course you know the thing is like back off bolt brain i want answers now and they just start clobbering each other it's only in comics this is so wonderful yeah i I, at this point at this point it's this is where uh, Tom DeFalco, it's clear that he's imitating the Stanley Jack Kirby style, but it becomes a little bit, I don't want to say too cheesy, but it, it's ridiculous. Definitely. Now, it leads up <laughs> to the era of comics. Now, this is where my only criticisms of the art style really come into play. On that page, okay. specifically what so happens. page nine. Okay. Yeah. When they start fighting. Sure. There is a scene on the previous page, actually page eight, I think it was. Yeah, right at the very bottom, the final panel. Okay. Where they start to engage in battle, and you have all these speed lines happening as they're engaging, but the dynamics of how their bodies are stretched really is questionable. And the perspective on the size of them, Mm -hmm. it's shifted where now the robot looks as if it should be twice the height of the thing. Sure. It's a minor complaint, but as we go through the comic, I'm going to make some more reference to some of the imagery in the fight scenes. But so far, no major offenses. Well, you know what? I think um, we we just... um, Last week, we reviewed a comic drawn by Herb Trimpey, who's one of my favorites. Mm -hmm. Herb Trimpey's art is not beautiful. It's not pretty, but the storytelling is exquisite. And that's how I feel about Ron Wilson is if you could take any one panel, you'd never say that's a good image or that's a good image. But overall, his storytelling is really solid, I think. right? As it's supposed to be in a comic, sequentially. And uh, of course, as they're engaged in this fight, there's exposition. Mm -hmm. uh, And of course, the robot can release gas from its fingers because it's the 70s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, right. So then we cut over back to Submariner to see what he's doing. And this is great because 
for someone that didn't know the backstory, um, he's wandering through the streets and actually has a flashback that's pretty useful because it's not like a typical flashback where they explain what happened last issue. He's jumping all the way back to Fantastic Four number four, which is from about 15 to 20 years before this comic. Yeah, yeah, about 20 years before this comic mm-hmm. came out. And he's remembering how he had... <laughs> He's like, he basically says, one of my em- enemies had used his mental powers to rob me of all my memory. So basically, he was a drifter for like 20 years. Mm-hmm. From like the 40s to the 60s, he was a drifter. Uh, he was discovered by the Human Torch, who kind of recognized him, so he burned away his facial hair and realized, oh, it's a Submariner. He still didn't have his memory, so he dumped him back in the, in the, the river, and then, of course, he gets reinvigorated by the water, and then all his memories come back. Mm-hmm. Which brings us to the present day, which do you want to explain what's, what's going on now? Okay, so this is really the crux of the issue. Forget about the thing. The thing mm-hmm. doesn't really play much into this. This is mainly Submariner's story. Right. So Submariner essentially remembers his time being a vagrant, and he recalls this particular vagrant that was very friendly to him, mm-hmm. that meant a lot to him, and he basically wants to give a thank you, make some sort of amends or uh, retribution for, you know, all the kind efforts, everything mm-hmm. that was given to him when he was without memory. It's actually really touching, and I think the great thing about the Marvel Universe, especially at this point, they really touched upon how these characters were outliers from society, mm-hmm. and paralleling this with this homeless population that Namor is encountering in this alley, it's great. It's really setting up that parallel. Although, it's interesting that Namor is walking around trying to be incognito, even though he's not wearing shoes and he has <laughs> wings coming out from yeah, his ankles. Yeah, I just realized that. That's great. I love it. I love it. Although it's the Marvel Universe, so people, they see, oh, you have wings? Well, at least you don't have four arms, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Also, you, you, i got to say one thing, too, about the Marvel continuity is this is a character... No, I, I haven't read... Uh, FF number four recently. I don't know if this is just retroactive, but a character that was probably mentioned once in one story that Tom DeFalco has brought back 20 years later. It's great because unfortunately in DC, they can't do that because they reboot the continuity every five to 10 years, right? And I think they lose track of what actually is brought out of continuity right. from there. And then we see discrepancies and they have to go back and retcon that, etc., etc. With Marvel... They've done retcons, but not to the same degree as DC, thankfully. Right. So then, okay, so now we come to the purpose of our podcast, which is to touch base with Quasar. We have a very brief scene um, over at Project Pegasus, where Quasar is the security chief. He hears an alarm, goes off, he bursts into this room, and we basically um, follow up with Black Goliath, Who's now called Giant Man, uh, Doctor? Thankfully, yeah, 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 Doctor. I know Black Goliath, Black, Black Panther, Lightning. Black Lightning. Oh, yeah. A little ridiculous, but okay. Um, so anyway, he's basically just he, he's experiencing um, these episodes because he's at this point dying of cancer. So this is a very it's only a page and a half, but basically again, it's just a way of. Marvel Toon One Star is the thing, but lately it's been following Quasar. So every couple issues will sort of touch base with Quasar. So there's not really much to this, but since the, the purpose of this uh, podcast is to talk about Quasar, can I ask you briefly if you've ever heard of Quasar before? Before this podcast, yeah. never. Never, okay. So you know nothing about him? I will say this, I've seen him before. Okay. I've seen images of him. I know nothing about Quasar. I'll just say... I mean, for the people listening, obviously you know who Quasar is. His costume was um, adopted from a previous superhero called Marvel Boy. Mm -hmm. Um, He has these quantum bands that give him power similar to Green Lanterns. He can kind of do anything with them. And eventually he becomes the Guardian. Is it the Guardian of the Universe? 
The guardian of the universe, the defender of the universe, the protect, the protector of the universe. Sorry, I gotta get that right. And anyway, I love him. That's why we're doing this podcast. But at this point, he was definitely not a star. He was a B, if not C-list character. And he doesn't get his own series for another seven or so years after this. But at this point, you know, we're just kind of touching base with him. Okay, so here we are. We The reason for the podcast. Now, I just want to say yes. this. <laughs> this is something that... Again, this incongruity I love about comics from this era. We have this scene where Quasar is thinking to himself, Foster has been slowly dying of radiation poisoning, and his, con- and his condition is deteriorating rapidly. Here's the thing. Any other character in the Marvel Universe, if they're exposed to radiation, they get superpowers. Yeah. A- in this one case, Giant Man, he develops cancer. Okay. That's a good point. I hadn't really thought about that. I guess it's sort of like a, a slight attempt at realism. And maybe, you know, because you're right, back in the 60s, anyone that was exposed to radiation just got superpowers. Now, do you know much about the history of Giant Man? Did he live past this arc? Oh, yes. Considering he lived at least until 2006. Civil War, right? Yes, yes. I uh, thought it was the same Giant Man. Yeah, okay. Which is when he was killed. I'm not sure if he's back now, but... Man, he has just got the wrong end of the stick for his entire career. I think he's kind of... You know what? To be honest, I felt like he's kind of a pawn because the, it's like, well, we want to kill somebody, but we can't kill anyone important. But he is called Goliath or Giant Man or... And he's got those powers, so we'll kill him. It's just too bad that he's one of the only prominent black characters, right? Mm-hmm. But He's always typical. been around the, the Avengers, I think, since the early 70s. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, this is just me with secondhand knowledge, thinking about the references to him throughout other comics I've read. But uh, there's never been a great adaptation of his character. No. Well, I mean, now he's in the Ant-Man movie, right? He was. But, but... he wasn't much to him. It was just kind of like... He's already older. He's already retired, right? And so. he's there, essentially. He's just... Doesn't, it's kind of just... A, 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 what's it called? Fan service, right? Just it, to have him in there. Exactly. Now, now we're getting back to the meat of the issue. Right. So we have Namor, and essentially he was told by one of these homeless vagrants, oh, yes, I know this person you're looking for. They're right in this abandoned building over yes. here. And Namor, of course, being the genius he is, <laughs> follows, mm-hmm. only to be ambushed. Um, this, is this appropriate to say he's been bum-rushed? You could say that. <laughs> yeah. You could say that. Um, bum rushed by these hooligans, but of course he easily fights them off, right? Because he is the prince of uh, Atlantis and has—he's one of the stronger heroes in the Marvel universe. I believe he can take on the thing one on one, so he's pretty strong. While ripping his clothes off with a single flex of his chest. Yes, apparently. good point. Good point. <laughs> and here we have a Kirby-esque. Um, uh, I don't even know what this. If there's a, you know, there's like. You know there's a Kirby Crackle? Yes. This should have its own name, but it doesn't. Basically, when a character has a bunch of people sort of swarming them, and then he, then they just sort of, you know, flex out, and then everyone just goes flying. You know, we have one of those classic ones on page 13 here. And this goes back to one of the criticisms I have about the art. Okay. There are certain panels where there is no background, and I understand mm-hmm. sometimes for the sake of making the fights a little bit more dynamic, you sacrifice background imagery, but it's completely white, except for debris and bodies being strewn about. And there's this weird dynamic line you're referring to. I loved it, and then when I looked at it some more, I realized, well, how is he actually moving his arms? The direction of it almost feels like he's going in a tornado, circling Good around. Point. You're right. Yeah, like, what exactly is he doing? I think he's clapping yeah. hands. Yeah. yeah, you're right. You're right. Good point. Yeah. 
Um, so yeah, again, not completely, again, they're imitating Lee and Kirby, but not thinking it all the way through, right? Mm -hmm. So here we get some kind of explanation where basically this, this guy says that, yes, he has heard of, um, Sunshine Mary, but she's disappeared as well as all these other homeless people, right? So now Neymar's upset because now, and now they're going to go and find out what's going on. And there's this very strained panel where he's looking up at the sky going, no! Right. And... (laughs) Not I great. Would, if you could see this, what page is this on for this the digital edition? 14. Yeah, it's. I don't think it's exactly a pained look. No, no. it's kind of strange. It's kind of hard. It's like he's trying to get his shoe on. Like, <laughs> a little Ugh. bit. Yeah, not great. Or okay, he's so, trying to scratch his back on something. I, I don't yeah, know. yeah, good point, good point. Okay, yeah. well, let's get this going because here, this is where he decides he's going to coalesce with these uh, homeless people and he's going to try to find the solution of who's been kidnapping these people and bring them to justice, essentially. Right. So then we cut um, into this sort of uh, base here and the thing wakes up and now we find out who's behind it all. It's actually MODOK. So for those of you that don't know, MODOK is this guy with a giant head and like a little normal sized body who's in this kind of floating chair. He was used in Captain America Winter Soldier, right? Was that MODOK? No, that was Arnim Zola. That's right. I always mix those two up. Right. Yeah, with MODOK, I think the only real appearance he's had outside are some of the Avengers and Marvel animated series. Right. Never in the cinematic universe, uh, which is a shame because what a great image. What this a great Giant head yes. on a robotic body. And uh, the way he talks is incredible. I am MODOK. <laughs> Once I was a human guinea pig, a plaything to be genetically manipulated by the scientist of AIM. AIM, yeah. That, oh, is it just AIM? Yeah, just AIM, yeah. Now I am the master. I, I, for some reason, I always imagine the Starscream voice coming from him. Yes, <laughs> yes. Good point, good point. And, you know, I love how he introduces himself. Whatever, hey, the readers know, but maybe the thing doesn't, right? But it's great. It's great. It's great 70s dialogue, right? Now, of course, we should mention the thing is in a giant glass container. All the homeless people that he brought with uh, well, actually, that I should say, Modoc's forces have kidnapped. Mm-hmm. They are in a ni- another giant glass container for the purpose of being guinea pigs because they're going to be exposed to Poison X. Yes. Is that what it's called? Is it Poison X or Virus X? Oh, Virus, virus X. Yes. Pardon me, Virus X. Not very creative with the naming there, but okay. So he, so he's, te- yeah. So, he's so what te- happened with Virus A through W? That's what I'm wondering. That's a good, that's a good question. We'll have to look into that. So, um, it's a, again, it's a little bit forced plotting because it's kind of just an, I mean, it's fine. It's fine. It's an excuse to kind of get all these characters together. He's testing it on the thing, but the thing is the thing. So we know he's not going to die, but that's fine. So he's testing it out on the thing. And then the thing starts fighting off these other robots that look just like the first one, right? Mm -hmm. And they kind of beat him down. But then Neymar comes in with all of his uh, homeless pals, right? And they come in to save the day. So then he's so the Neymar starts fighting the robots, and then the homeless guys come in, right? And they start helping out. Now I think this is the crux of the okay. whole issue. Right in the top right-hand panel, there's dialogue here. Where, page nineteen, yeah. Page nineteen, where as they're attacking the forces of Modok, they say, "Whatever else we are, we're men." We'll fight for our dignity. And that's what I mean about Marvel paralleling these disenfranchised groups with the heroes. Good point. This is exactly what they were referring to with The Thing and Namor throughout their careers. These people that are seen as outliers from major society, just like these homeless people, and showing a parallel to them. And I think maybe emphasizing the fact that, hey, 
Maybe homeless people are just not vagrant for some sinister reason. Maybe they're human too. Again, something I loved about Marvel back in the day, and you know, to a degree, arguably still now. That's a good, really good point. Well thought out uh, on the point of on the part of uh, Tom DeFalco here, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's really thinking. Yeah, good point. So Namor comes in and ends up fighting. This is like another. This is the uh, now. There's another robot without the colors, different colors, right? But it's. It's, it's a repaint of the same re- action yeah. figure. <laughs> oh, the super synthesoids of AIM. Okay, so this is a different robot series. So the thing fights them. This is unfortunately one of the the you know the the things we've realized with reviewing these comics. Usually, there's at least a third of the comic that's devoted to just fisticuffs, right? Mm-hmm. Which is fine. I could put up with it. It's a Marvel comic. That's fine. Um, it's my least favorite part of the comic, but it's Mike Dell's favorite part of the comic. But anyway. So basically, Modok ends up escaping, right? In his little, um, what is this here? It's kind of like a, I don't know, what a is it? A gestation tube yeah. or some sort of sphere he's going into. But wait, did he really escape? What is that hissing sound? The canister! It was damaged in our escape. Ay, we're being exposed <laughs> yeah. to virus yes. X! I, Uh-oh! <laughs> I love it. I love it. Oh, it's great. Anyway, so then... This is what we've been waiting for. The reunion with Sunshine Mary. Mm-hmm. And this is sad because Neymar says, Sunshine Mary has been many years. Then Sunshine Mary says, keep away from me. When I knew you in the Bowery, Bowery I thought you, were, you was one of us, someone down on his luck. But that was before I learned you was a freak, a monster. I may be a homeless old bag lady, but I've got my pride. I don't mess with your kind. Don't you mess with mine. It's sad. And then the thing says, Subby, I know how you must feel. Silence, human. I am a prince of the blood. Pity is for mortals. Though I am part Atlantean and part human, I have never truly felt at ease in either world. What could you know of such bitter rejection, of such utter loneliness? And then the thing says, you'd be surprised, pal. Very surprised. Great. Poignant end. Yes. Only, but it's not the end. There's more. What happens? Virus X. I forgot all about it. I was exposed to it, and it's killing me. And that's how the issue ends. Yes. Kind of an awkward cliffhanger, but it is the way to bring us back, to pull us back next month, right? The hilarious thing is, is since this is Quasar Chronology, we're not going to find out because we're not going to read it because Quasar's not in it. So, it's so, a shame. You'll never know, I guess. Yeah. Maybe he died. Who knows? Who knows? Have never yeah. seen Ben Grimm again? Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah. So that's the end of our, this story. So let's have some general thoughts. Um, first of all, okay, let's, I mean, we, we've been talking about the writing all along, but what is your opinion of Tom DeFalco as a writer? Uh, you know what? I think as a writer, he's perfectly serviceable. Like you said, I think mm-hmm. he is attempting to recapture the type of Stanley verbiage. Mm-hmm. Uh, and again, I do appreciate not only the vocabulary used, I am a sucker for alliteration. So sure. all throughout this comic, uh, it's really great. The only thing that I'm not a fan of, and again, this is very of the era, is the fact that there's so much pontification, mm-hmm. so much exposition. It's a comic that was released, I think, 1974, though. And well, that's when the series started. This issue was 81. This was yeah. 80. I am, I'm actually surprised. I did not realize that. So it felt older? It felt older. You know, with the level of uh, yeah pontification that was going on. I, I don't know. I wasn't a fan of all the exposition. I thought a lot of this could be better served in thought bubbles. But in terms of the actual writing, it was serviceable. I, I do appreciate the parallels that happened. And, you know, I think leading up to that ending sequence, that parallel between Namor and the Thing, both feeling like they don't really belong in any particular world, mm-hmm. his rejection mm-hmm. by Sunshine Mary, 
I thought it was pretty poignant, and I think mm-hmm. it went in the place that actually was a bit more mature than I was expecting for a comic where Namor punches a giant gold robot. <laughs> right, that's a good point. I think the thing about uh, Tom DeFalco is he is a good writer, but no matter how good his comics are, they always sort of are, I don't want to say weighed down, but it's like he never forgets that he's writing a superhero comic mm-hmm. for good or ill, right? So it, it always has that, like, the, the scene of um, the thing coming across the robot in the alley is just ridiculous. But for Tom DeFalco, he goes, hey, it's a superhero comic, so whatever, I can do what I want, right? Mm-hmm. But he is a good writer. I mean, he's been around forever, and he's obviously talented, so. The only caveat to that is it felt like the thing did not need to be in this issue whatsoever. This was mm-hmm. Submariner's story. It really could have just been him mm-hmm. tracking down Modoc. He still could have had that interaction with Sunshine Mary and... That would have been it. The thing really felt somewhat superfluous. Some good character moments, for mm-hmm. sure, but uh, he didn't really get the story going. He was not initiating any sort of plot in this. That's something that we come across a lot in our reviews of uh, Marvel Team-Up with Spider-Man, yes. where a lot of the issues feel like they just had, they're like, well, we want to tell a story with Doc Sampson, so we'll just shove Spider-Man in. Or we want to tell a story with Nighthawk, we'll just shove Spider-Man in. So unfortunately, that's sort of what happened here, right? Mm-hmm. And then we've talked about um, Ron Wilson. Um, I think we're both kind of on the same page with Ron Wilson's art. It's definitely great storytelling, some creativity, but not the most appealing, I guess. Not as appealing as, say, John Romita or John Buscema or oh, Jack Kirby. No, 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 not at all. Um, what about the Quasar scale? Is that a thing? The Quasar scale, <laughs> there's not really much to say with Quasar. Um, we kind of just touch base really quickly. I mean, what's your impression? Are you interested in reading more Quasar based on this? Or is it not enough to pull you in? On this? I yeah. don't even know who this guy is. There's no indication of character. Okay. And this is the other thing. Um, this is a complete non sequitur for the rest of the issue. I will say, I read ahead. I did read the second issue. I'm not ah, going to talk about interesting. it. Interesting. Okay. But I do know how the storyline was resolved. The whole purpose of the scene was to incorporate Giant Man in the next issue. Okay. So in that way, it makes sense. Otherwise... It just seemed to be completely out of left field. This uh, page and a half sequence, Stora just this page and a half sequence, it stuck out like a sore right. thumb. It there, doesn't. It's not. It's much. not very organic, right? No. no. Unfortunately, as time went on in the '80s and '90s, I think comics got a lot more and more like this, where they were juggling subplots, but they didn't really organically fit together. So it's kind of common at the time. Um, so then the final question is: What do you rate this comic? Do I rate it? <laughs> yes. Do you, what do you rate it a 10? Oh. <laughs> I'm going to let you have the pleasure of going first. Okay. I'll say... You know what? I'll say the story is about... I would say a 6 or a 7. In that it's... I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm grading it on... I, I don't want to say the curve, but of the time. It's definitely good enough that it was enjoyable. I mean, I wouldn't rush out to... Um, read more stories like this, but I would say it's better than the average story I've read in this era. And the art is definitely, I would say the art is around the same, six or seven. It's solid, you know? That's, so I'll give it about a seven then, we'll say. Okay. Um, I'm going to be a little bit more conservative. If okay. I have to give some sort of numeric score to this, I'm going to say it's a serviceable comic. I'd give it something like a five or a six. Okay. Nothing horrible about it, uh-huh. but again, they didn't really advance anything about the Thing's character, mm-hmm. nor arguably for Submariner. Now, I did appreciate the social commentary they had in there. Mm-hmm. Very subtle, but it was present. But I didn't think it really advanced the characters too much. And in terms of the story itself, 
serviceable, entertaining, but I would never go out of my way to recommend it in lieu of other thing or Submariner stories. So for Bronze Age 1980s comics, this is not something you'd recommend to a reader. Well, my exposure to that era is mainly through DC, so I have a very different sort of frame of reference. So... I, you know, I'm going against maybe the old JLA, and I'm going okay. against, you know, that ilk of story writing. So I think there's more character development in that. I think even a greater degree of social commentary and less reliance on here's exposition and then a fight sequence. And you mentioned yourself that kind of tends to be the trend for a lot of these issues. Uh, but then again, when you read stuff from certain eras, you mm-hmm. tend to read the cream of the crop, right? Right. Yeah, so again, what I'm comparing it to are pretty high benchmarks. So give us one comic then. If you could recommend a comic from this era, you mentioned Justice League. Is that the comic that you would recommend? I would think so. I think that run on Justice League from the early 80s. By, what, what, is this Jerry Conway? Is it Conway, yeah. Really? Yeah. Okay. I okay. actually am a fan of that. I know it's a little bit decisive. Mm-hmm. Or I should say it's a little bit divisive. Yeah. But I'm a fan of it. I think there's great character moments in okay. there. There's great team dynamics, which is what I think justifies a team title. Sure. Uh, here, you know what? There's a good sense of dynamics with Namor and the thing in like the very last page. And beyond mm-hmm. that, there's no reason for them to be in the same comic. That's a great point. And you know what? We just reviewed a, a Jerry Conway comic on Flea Market Fantasy. It was Amazing Spider-Man 111, I think. And it was great. Oh, I love that issue, yes. You you remember the issue? Yes. Uh, with Craven yeah. the Hunter? Yes. You remember the number, the issue number? I, I actually have a collection, a hardcover collection of old issues of Amazing Spider-Man. Get That's it, yeah. Wow. Well, just based on what you've just said in the last few minutes, we're certainly going to have to have you on again on one of our podcasts if you're interested in guesting again. I think I would. That'd be great. All right, so there you go, folks. So that was Adam Peltier from the Windsor Public Library, right? Um, do you want to Do you want to plug anything? I mean, I know that most of our um, listeners are probably not from Windsor, but if you are, we have a really great uh, comic book collection at the library, right? We do. We have a lot of graphic novels and comic books available for young readers, teens, and adults. We try to have a very diverse collection. And even if you are out of the city, if you're taking a trip to Windsor anytime soon, visit any one of our locations and check out what we have. We'll be glad to let you know what's available, and maybe you can even participate in a program or two. Excellent. Okay, so there you go, folks. Quasar Quinology number 11. This has been your co-host, Michael, and I'll see you again in seven days. All right.